Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Our country continues to face devastating acts of gun violence that left families and communities filled with grief and anger. Our guest today, Shannon Watts, founded Moms Demand Action following the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012, which has since turned into a powerful grassroots network of mothers dedicated to creating change at the local, state, and national level. Moms Demand Action is educating, motivating, and mobilizing families to take action that have resulted in stronger laws and policies that save lives. It is hundreds of thousands of volunteers and chapters in all 50 states, over 8 million supporters, and is now part of Every Town for Gun Safety. Shannon is also the author of the book, Fight Like a Mother. Shannon, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. So on June 24th, Congress passed the Safer Communities Act. I think it's called that, if I get that right. Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, yep. Yes, bipartisan. I forgot about that part. (laughs) That's also something we can probably unpack. In your own words, what do you think was good and worked when it comes to this act? And also, and more importantly, I would say, what's missing? Yeah, look, it is certainly one step on a much longer journey that needs to be accomplished in this country around federal gun safety legislation. But let's also be clear that that first step in itself is monumental. This is the the first federal gun safety legislation that has passed both chambers of Congress and been signed into law by the president in 26 years, right? That's a a generation of survivors mourning loved ones, 26 years of preventable tragedies, 26 years of thoughts and prayers. And our theory of change has always been that this is going to be incremental and that that incrementalism will eventually lead to revolutions. I mean, that's what we've seen happen so often in this country on other issues. When you look at what this legislation does do, you know, it provides, for example, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding for red flag laws. These are, are laws that allow either family members or police to get a temporary restraining order that disarms someone who is a danger to themselves or others. We know these laws work when we look at the data, everything from domestic gun violence to mass shootings to even suicides. And so funding the implementation and the incentivizing of these laws in the states where they exist, or even encouraging other states to pass them is important. The other thing that this legislation does that we have been trying to close now for almost a decade is the dating partner loophole. And this is a loophole that allows stalkers or dating partners to have guns. They're not considered prohibited purchasers, unlike spouses or someone you have children with. And so closing that loophole, given that, you know, we have a 25 times higher domestic gun violence homicide rate than any peer nation. And then one other thing I would mention, it does a lot of things. These are sort of the the top three in my mind. The third thing it does is it creates an enhanced background check process for people who are under 21, who are purchasing guns, long guns, and it makes it harder for them to just go into a store and then walk out right away with a, an assault rifle. And that just means that they're they're checking with different databases, they're checking with local law enforcement before the sale proceeds. And that's important because 18 to 20 year olds commit homicides, gun homicides at a triple rate than anyone over the age of 21. 
And you asked me, you know, what doesn't this law do? I don't think you should be able to buy a gun if you're under the age of 21. But this is an important and significant step forward. And there are more things that we need to do, right? We need to close the background check loophole at a federal level. We need to implement a federal red flag law. We need to close something called the Charleston loophole that allows someone to buy a gun after three days if their background check has it cleared. There's so many more things we can and should do that we're doing in the states and that data shows work, but this is a good first step. Yeah, like you said earlier, it's all about incrementally continuing to make progress against all these things, including these loopholes. I have a quick follow-up on the partner loophole. Would that include people who are going through a divorce, but a spouse is actually living with the other spouse? Yes. So already the federal law covers people who are cohabitating or people who have a restraining order. It does not include stalkers or dating partners. And because people are waiting so long now to get married, right, after age 30 often, women who are dating partners are now as likely to be killed with a gun by an intimate partner than as married people. So, you know, that is important modernization of our laws. Right, right. And talk a little bit about what inspired you, I believe in 2012, to actually start Moms Demand Action. I took a break from my career in corporate communications for about five years. I remarried and my husband and I were blending our our family. We have five children all together. And I was getting ready to go back into the corporate world. I was looking for jobs and I was living in suburban Indiana at the time. Very cold day in December, folding laundry, watching TV in the background. And suddenly there was a bulletin that came on that said there was an active shooter in Newtown, Connecticut, inside an elementary school. And like so many Americans, I I sat down where I was and watched this tragedy unfold. You know, even now, 10 years later, it's sort of hard to wrap my brain around 20 children and six educators being slaughtered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. But that's exactly what unfolded before all of our eyes. And I was just devastated. Again, like so many other Americans, I couldn't believe the pain these families were enduring. It was the holiday season. And I went to bed in tears, but I woke up so just outraged that I knew Congress wasn't going to do anything. You know, they hadn't done anything after Columbine. They hadn't done anything after Virginia Tech or even after one of their own colleagues, Gappy Giffords, was shot. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to join something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which was so influential to me as a teen in the 1980s. They essentially changed the culture of of drunk driving within a decade. And I, I went online and I couldn't find anything. I found some think tanks run by men. I found some state and city organizations mostly run by men. I wanted to be part of a badass army of women. That's who I've seen get so much done in this country over and over again. And it just didn't exist. So I created a Facebook page, not trying to start an organization, just thinking, okay, let's have a conversation about the fact that we need this kind of organization. And if you know anything about type A women, which I'm sure many of your listeners do. I believe I'm married to one. <laughs> she does listen to the podcast, so she'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. Well, she, she may have been one of the people, you know, who was Googling my personal information and calling me and texting me and direct messaging me and saying, I want to start this where I live too. And really, you know, none of us knew what this meant, right? What did it mean to organize? How do you do that? But that's exactly what I did with a group of of strangers all across the country. 
That's incredible. And how do you, well, I have, a, I have a bunch of questions. Let me just first start with, how did you deal with any resistance along the way? Not from day one, but unfortunately, this and so many issues, as Bill Maher would say, it's reactive partisanship. Everything has to be political. Everything's political, whether we like it or not, right? I don't think human life should be political, personally. It's human. But having said that, we live in reality. How have you dealt with resistance and hate and naysayers and people who come after you along the way from the day you started through today? Yeah, I mean, that hit me right away. I was in no way prepared for, one, the pushback I would get just from people who said, we don't need this, you shouldn't do this, you can't do this, you're not the right person to do this. And I really had to sort of just dig down deep and listen to the feedback, but decide that I was going to try and fail if that if I failed, but that it was still worth trying. And I think a lot of times, you know, women feel like they have to cross all their T's and dot their I's. They're very afraid of failing publicly, because there is so much pressure for perfectionism. And I felt like that was a gating factor that I just wasn't going to pay attention to. And I'm glad I didn't. And the, the second piece of it is the underbelly of America that frankly, I didn't know existed. I was living, I guess, in a bubble in my home in, in suburban Indiana. But, you know, the death threats, the threats of sexual violence to me and to my kids started right away. I can remember in early days calling the police and saying, like, here are all the threats I'm getting. And, and the police officer looked at me and said, well, that's what happens when you mess with the Second Amendment, ma'am. So, you know, I had a, a lot of learning to do, but I was, I'm really glad. Feel free to share his name here. If you like. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I am very glad in retrospect that I didn't know those obstacles laid in front of me because, you know, I might not have created that Facebook page. I think you would have, but but I do appreciate <laughs> your, your, I appreciate how humble you are. I also, being that we both come from the corporate comms and PR industry, we talked about this a little bit off air before we hit the record button, but I'm also president of PRSA New York. And after the Uvalde shooting, I sent a note out to our members. And some people are like, why are we sending a note? I said, because our members need to understand, one, that they need to counsel their CEOs and or their clients or they're an agency, that they need to speak up and speak out when these things happen, and they need to take a stand, number one. Number two, um, it's also important that as communicators, we recognize the gift we have of influence and persuasion and oration, and that we use it for good. And I appreciate that you pivoted from that trade craft and you're using it for good. So I just have to call that out because I think it's so important and not enough people do that. So not only do you have bravery and courage to do what you did, and I still think you would have done it, and I still think deep down you knew that you were gonna get some threats and it's gonna be difficult, but that you're applying the skills and knowledge that you gained over decades, not to age either of us, but I believe we both grew up, we both grew up in the 70s and 80s. And, I think that you're referring to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? That's yes, what, yes. That's MAD was, was very... just so influential in our our youth, right? I mean, it changed this idea of this person got in a car and drove drunk and killed their family. We can't hold them accountable. They've suffered so much to, wait a minute, laws are the moral underpinning of our society. If we don't hold people accountable, these senseless preventable tragedies are going to happen over and over Flash forward to 2022, and people are, are back where we were in the 70s and 80s saying, oh, you know, that person left a loaded gun on their kitchen counter and their kid got it and shot someone. We can't hold them accountable. They've suffered enough. And, and we are coming along and saying, wait a minute, laws are the moral underpinning of our society. 
if we don't hold people accountable for responsible gun ownership and storage, these sensible injuries and shootings will just continue to occur. Right. It's all avoidable. I, I totally agree. I want to talk a little bit about the power of the mom. So I was reading a really interesting, I think it was a column, as an opinion piece in the Washington Post in July of this year. And the author, who I believe is also a PhD candidate, had juxtaposed, I think, eight or 10 years of not just your social personas and your social profile, but everything that you've written, spoken about in interviews against the former spokesperson for the NRA, another woman, another mom, noting that you both use motherhood as a platform to be able to push activism. Of course, completely polar opposite points of view about gun reform and gun control and gun laws. And what I found so interesting is most of your content is really about protecting the community and the children in the community, whereas the other individual who's a spokesperson for the NRA, also a mom, really was about individual rights, not communal rights, individual rights and protecting her children and telling parents to protect their children. If you can just comment on that a little bit and also the power of mom and motherhood and how do you use that power without then also retreading or going into genderization of stereotypes about moms, because you're kind of flipping the script a little bit, very much so, but in a really good way. But so is your, I hate to call her an opponent, but I do think she's an opponent from the NRA, from the NRA. Yeah, you know, the thing that was interesting about that analysis was completely left out of it, how different we are is that that person, spokesperson for the NRA, is actually someone who makes millions and millions of dollars just regurgitating talking points from gun manufacturers, right? That's how that person makes a living. Whereas I am a full-time volunteer. I'm not a lobbyist. I've never taken a dime. In fact, all of my book proceeds have been given to gun violence prevention organizations. And I am, I am sharing research and information based on data. And to me, those are just so disparate. But at the same time, I think it is important to talk about the fact that, you know, the NRA saw what we were doing, what Moms Demand Action was doing. They saw that it was successful and they tried to cultivate women and mother spokespeople. And it was not successful. In fact, that person has been fired for abject racism, ultimately. And in addition, there was a, there's, I don't know if you know who Essie Cup is. She's a Republican, uh-huh. or at least was a Republican oh, sure. pundit. And she actually at one point made an ad that was called, I'm an NRA mom. And she has since said, I denounce the NRA. I no longer am part of the NRA because they are a part of the problem. And so the NRA has really never had a lot of luck indoctrinating and cultivating women as gun buyers. Some of that has changed during COVID, but at the end of the day, the average gun buyer by far and away is a white man over the age of 50 or 60 years old. When I started Moms Demand Action, certainly Mothers Against Drunk Driving was so influential to me. And in retrospect, I don't know how they accomplished what they did just with telephones and cars, frankly, but you know, <laughs> social media is it's a huge boon to activism. But I felt like there was this very open lane for women and in particular moms to use their moral authority in society, whether we want that role or not, that's where we, what we've been given, right? We're the caretakers, we're children advocates. If you go back to activism, when we were started to, to be allowed to get involved in activism, it was really during prohibition. Men could never put that genie back in the bottle. And, and we've been at the forefront and at the front line ever since 
on child labor laws and suffrage and all the way up to the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and very successful. And then you, you dig down even another layer and you see that women are only about 25% of the 500,000 elected positions in this country. And I think we're less than 1%, certainly less than 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs. And so as a result, we aren't able to make the policies and the laws that keep our families and our communities safe. What can we do? Well, we can use our, our voices, right? We can use the platforms we're now given through social media, and we can use our votes. We're the majority of the voting public. We're certainly the swing voter when you look across politics and, and political lines. And so that's how we can be effective. And I just had this theory of change that if we empowered women, if we made them feel like badasses and gave them the tools to take on the most powerful, wealthy, special interest that's ever existed, that we could be successful. And I think that's proven to be true. I mean, we have volunteers that aren't just shaping policy, they're actually getting elected to office and making it now. And aren't you also providing funding for women to be able to run for office? Yes, so our our demand a seat program is a a relatively new campaign because we saw that organically our volunteers were running for office and we wanted to to codify that and make it official and actually train and prepare them and help them win. And how many chapters do you have now across? We have a chapter in every single state. We have local groups all across the country, and in fact, we've grown exponentially in the the last several months because of all of the horrific national mass shooting tragedies and. We now have over 10 million supporters, so we're twice as large as the NRA. Wow. And I misspoke earlier. I think I said 8 million. Well, we're, we're growing all the time. Yeah. So. And don't get me wrong. I wish you didn't have to exist, but I'm happy that you do exist, just to state that. So how small is too small to start a chapter? There is no such thing as too small because we will help you recruit new volunteers. So Anyone who is interested, you know, if you go to momsdemandaction.org, we will certainly help you set up either a chapter or a local group where you are. That's awesome. And what's the history behind joining Every Town for Gun Safety, another incredible organization? I would say about six months into having started Moms Demand Action online, there were so many volunteers who wanted to keep doing the work. And they were, you know, really giving me their time and talents out of the goodness of their hearts. And I, I knew if we wanted to last into perpetuity, we were going to have to partner with another organization. No one was that interested in giving money to some random woman in Indiana that they'd never heard of. And so I started interviewing people inside the movement and even outside the movement to say, look, I've got this army. You've got generals. Like, what if we came together? How incredibly powerful would that be? And when I met with Mayor Bloomberg's team, it was very clear that we had a lot of synergies in in terms of how we wanted to approach this issue. Mike was leaving office. We were very committed to growing a volunteer grassroots base, to working on this really in three ways, electorally, legislatively, and culturally. And Mike and I decided that we would partner. And together we created Every Town for Gun Safety. And we have several brands now under that umbrella. Certainly Moms Demand Action. We now have Students Demand Action. We have a, a survivors group. We have Mayors Against Illegal Guns, which was the, the group that Mike started. And even a, a creative team made up of influencers like celebrities and artists. 
So there's a lot under the umbrella of every town for gun safety. Yeah, no, I, I think it's incredible. And I can't think of a better business leader, benefactor, and human being than Mike Bloomberg in so many different ways. I, I can do a whole podcast just on that. But I'm glad you, you know, that's just a lesson for anybody trying to start something. You know, you can do a lot on your own, but you can't do everything on your own. And how do you interface with other organizations that are like-minded and aligned with your vision and mission? Because unfortunately, again, in many ways, there are so many and there are power in numbers. So I get asked the question all the time, like, why don't all the gun safety groups get together and become one behemoth? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't ask that. I didn't ask that. Yeah, Yeah, and I do get asked that. So, you know, I just want to be clear that there isn't just one gun lobby. There are many different national gun lobbying organizations. And in fact, I would say because we've weakened the NRA so much, there are several that are, are either coming up or have sprung up and are gaining more power. They're filling the vacuum. And it's important to keep in mind that every single state has its own version of the NRA. And most of those organizations are to the right of the NRA, right? For example, when I lived in Colorado, they're called the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. And they believe any law at all is an infringement on the Second Amendment. So we aren't just up against one organization. And, you know, over on the gun safety side, each organization plays a very important role. And early on, I remember someone from the marriage equality movement said to me, it's fine if there are more than one organization. The issue is whether you communicate and you sort of have a battle plan. And so that's exactly what we do. Every single week, all the organizations get together and we talk about who's doing what and who should take on what role. You know, there are organizations to our right, there are organizations to our left, there are organizations that focus on gun owners or students and et cetera. So I think we work well together. Our organization is incredibly valuable. We're the only organization with a grassroots base of volunteers. And as I said, we focus on on this in very specific ways. And back to your original point, which is no one person, no one organization can address any issue all on its own. It does take partnering and linking elbows with not just national organizations, but there's so many organizations on the grounds in, in, in cities and states that have been doing this work for decades. Why do you think, having been at this for so long now, why do you think the gun issue is such a uniquely American problem? You don't see this issue in other countries. You don't see as many gun owners. You don't see as much gun violence. Why here? Because we have allowed unfettered gun access, which has enriched gun manufacturers and created a gun lobby. That's it at the end of the day, right? We have nearly 400 million guns in this country. We have way too few gun laws. As a result, we have a 25 times higher gun homicide rate than any peer nation. But we also have gun lobbyists who work for gun manufacturers. They wake up every day and they try to dismantle the gun safety laws we have, or they try to stop good laws from passing. That's sort of their their whole thing. And when we look, this is pretty intuitive, but when you look at the data, states with stronger gun laws have less gun death and violence, and states with weak gun laws have more gun death and gun violence. Again, intuitive, but the data bears this out. And because we have a gun lobby that that makes especially right-wing lawmakers worried that they'll get primaried or that they'll lose their jobs if they go up against the gun lobby, we get these horrific laws that endanger Americans while profiting gun manufacturers. We know they make about $9 billion a year 
when you look, for example, at the marketing of assault rifles. So it is a business proposition and no other nation has allowed that to happen. Yeah. I imagine that suicide rates are also probably lower in states with stronger gun laws, right? Not just homicide. Yes. That's right. Gun homicide, gun suicide, unintentional shootings, domestic gun violence, mass shootings across the board. Right. It's common sense. I also found it fascinating, and I think it's working against them now. The NRA used to grade, literally grade lawmakers, right? A, B, C, D, based on, because that was one of their, it was actually quite smart at the time, and now it's working against them ways to get them on side, right? Yes, they have a grading system where they give you an A through F, and that is supposed to be something that educates voters about who they should go into the polls and vote for. And because Moms Demand Action has worked so hard to educate particularly swing voters about who their gun sense candidates are, that F rating, you know, that has become a badge of honor for lawmakers who are on the right side of this issue. And, and an A rating has become a scarlet letter. And what was interesting is that in 2018, the data showed the NRA clearly that it didn't help to be loud and proud about your gun extremism. And what the NRA did is they went into their website and they took down all of their grades for years, right? Their track record. And thankfully we had saved all that data. So we just put it right back up on our own website to show people you know, who had good grades from the NRA and that they should vote accordingly. And we even see lawmakers wearing their, I'm proud to be an F pin. So I do think that's backfired and it just goes to show how, how weakened the NRA is politically. Yeah, I guess the NRA didn't know about the Wayback Machine. <laughs> exactly, all the internet is forever. Website. Yeah, it is forever. Forever good and forever bad. Can you talk a little bit about the rising gun sales during COVID and also the rising gun sales after every mass shooting, which is horrendous? And I assume that the latter is because people are then worried about regulation to follow, so they're going to load up on guns. I could be wrong, but that's my assumption. And the first might have been because they just felt unsafe and they just felt like, you know, there's probably messaging towards them about how, you know, you better just load up on your guns now because who knows, this is Armageddon. I don't know. It's just conjecture, but I'm curious as to your point of view. You know, when we saw the NRA start to become extremely to the right of mainstream America on the issue of guns was after the Oklahoma bombing, after Waco, after Hurricane Katrina, when they saw that they could raise money by threatening the government taking your guns away. You may remember that George Bush Sr. actually resigned from the NRA after they referred to federal agents as jackbooted thugs. And what was interesting was that was really a fundraising mechanism, but it was so successful that it became quickly part of their political strategy to be that extremist, to focus on chaos and to foment outrage about things that weren't happening, about conspiracy theories in, in many ways. And that they saw that they could raise money, they could sell guns, and that it really behooved them ultimately, even if it hurt them a little bit with mainstream America, it didn't really matter as long as they kept winning political elections. And when COVID happened, right, COVID's kind of a natural disaster in many ways. And, and they saw that as an opportunity to sell guns. And that's exactly what they did, right? The ATF deemed gun dealers, essential businesses, allowed curbside gun sales under Donald Trump. All of these 
extremist measures that would only make a natural disaster or a pandemic worse. And that's exactly what we saw, right? We saw gun violence begin to spike and gun sales. I think at this point, tens of millions of guns we know were sold during the pandemic. And what we're seeing now, these horrific mass school shootings, the daily homicides and suicides, all of that is about even easier access to guns while simultaneously the NRA has worked to weaken laws. For example, they've now passed something called permitless carry in 21 states, which essentially removes the background check and training requirement from owning a gun. And so you you put all that together and it's like the perfect recipe for horrific tragedies in this country. And so that's why it's more important than ever that we are passing gun safety policies all the way from school boards up to Congress. Do you think that if you had to buy insurance as a requisite to be able to basically, you know, be permitted and carry a firearm, would that be a gating factor? Or do you think that's not going to matter? I mean, I think it is by definition a gating factor, right? Anytime you do anything that makes it not more difficult, but just, you know, fulfilling Maybe your responsibilities. More also uh, more yeah, expensive, but right. but but just we aren't against the Second Amendment. A lot of our volunteers are gun owners, their partners are gun owners. This is about restoring the responsibilities that should go along with gun rights. Just like we have certain responsibilities that go along with driving rights, right? And now gun extremists will say, well, you you know, the right to drive is not in the constitution, as if that means you don't need to have any training or a background check. Yeah. And and by the way, women aren't mentioned in the constitution yes, either, but we exactly. still have women. Right. right. And they always and seem to leave off the, right. the well-regulated part. But you know, I think that we don't know the answer to your question. We are very data driven. But interestingly, San Jose, after a shooting tragedy at a bus transit station last year, we worked with officials there to pass the first of its kind legislation that does require gun owners to have insurance. So we will be watching that data closely. With your background and my background, how do you think media coverage around these tragedies helps and or hurts the cause? It's a great question. First thing is we're numb. People are numb to gun violence in this country. I actually don't agree with that. I think we're traumatized, but I also think media has run out of ways to report on the daily gun violence that kills over 110 Americans and wounds hundreds more. So at this point, it's like there has to be the certain body count before it's deemed a headline. And I think that contributes to the sense of being desensitized. I actually, I don't know any parent in this country who's willing to live in a nation where we send our kids to school and we don't know if they're going to come home. But I think because the media has run out of sort of exciting or interesting or, you know, compelling ways to cover the gun violence that happens in this country day in and day out, I do think that is problematic. I think sometimes posing this as though it's an, a both sides issue, as though it's polarizing, as though there's an equal amount of Americans who oppose gun safety as there are who support it. It's simply not true, right? I'm not sure there's any other issue that gets as much bipartisan, broad-based support as a background check on every gun sale. Yet there is this very vocal minority, some of whom are U.S. senators, who have opposed the mainstream legislation, the life-saving legislation, that even most Republicans and governors support. So even when you pose it as, oh, we've got to get both sides in here, no, you don't. Yeah. Isn't it truly in some ways a healthcare crisis as well? If you really think about it from a data standpoint. Yeah. 
it's a healthcare epidemic. It's a financial and economic epidemic. The billions of dollars we spend as a nation from, you know, job loss to people who we have to recoup their medical benefits. I mean, you can look at this in every facet and it is a crisis. So we are in back to school season. So part of the country, especially in the South and the West, they're already started school. The rest of the country will be starting school very soon. What are you most concerned about as we go into this next school year? I'm very concerned about gunfire on school grounds. I'm concerned about that every single year. And I had a feeling after kids went back to school because of COVID and all of the gun sales that we had and the laws that were weakened, that it would be a horrific year. And it was. It was more gunfire on school grounds than we have ever recorded in doing this work. You know, from shootings at high school football games to kids' soccer events to kids bringing guns to school either on purpose or by accident in their backpacks to shooting tragedies, people purposely, students coming to school and and killing other students. It was just a horrific year. And I'm so worried about that being replicated this year. You know, we know that about 4.6 million kids in this country live in homes with unsecured guns, meaning they're not locked, they're loaded. They're easy to access. We also know that the vast majority of school shooters are students. It's not some, unlike Uvalde, it's not some shadowy figure that that usually comes into the school and opens fire. It is a kid. And And there's almost always warning signs. People are rarely surprised, right? Rarely surprised that that kid shot off the school. Always. So you've got this combination of unsecured guns, warning signs, easy access to guns, and then students who are having issues. And so I'm worried about that. And also we have to remember that school safety is a billion dollar industry. So it's simultaneously, we have these drills that simulate gun violence and that that traumatize kids. It's really a dystopian scenario. Have you seen the movie Not Okay? I have not. We'll talk again one day. (laughs) After you watch it, I just wonder, without giving it away, it's, it's a multi-layered movie that I think has a lot of statements about culture and society, and it does weave in school shootings and gun violence. And I also wonder how the entertainment industry can also be an advocate and do more with their voice and their power and their influence. And that movie made me think about it a little bit. Yeah, I mentioned the Creative Council we have, and it's run by Julianne Moore. And she's brought together an amazing list of hundreds of actors and artists and musicians. I mean, it's it's pretty helpful, I think, to the movement to use the voices of people who are influential and who are looked up to. I think that's an interesting conversation. You know, what more can Hollywood do? Just like they're doing around smoking or some of the other and sustainability yeah sustainability yeah. you know how come adam adam mckay needs to create a don't look up yes for gun reform that's what I he love needs that idea. i'm sure he listens to the podcast so i'm sure i'm he's sure on he does right yeah i'll email him later better i'll text him later Great. and uh, yeah you've been so kind with your time and i'm in awe of everything that you've done and you continue to do and i have just so much respect for it and you personally and professionally and my last question is just When the ordinary citizen stops listening to this podcast, we don't want them to stop being an advocate or to stop being engaged. What can an ordinary citizen do today, tomorrow, 
right away after they hear this podcast. Yes, I am an ordinary citizen among many ordinary citizens who wake up and do this work every single day where they live. And I would just say, find a piece of this work that you're passionate about. And it could be, maybe you want to get involved in legislation that's happening in your state house. We've passed hundreds of bills. We stopped 90% of the NRA's agenda in state houses year after year for the last seven years. You could work on that. Maybe you're interested in the electoral cycle. Obviously, the midterm elections are important, not just for this issue, but for democracy. You could start getting out the vote. Maybe it's cultural work. You want to educate people about secure gun storage through our Be Smart program. Just find a piece of the work that you are passionate about and dig in. And look, it's like drips on a rock. You don't have to do this full time. You can give us a few hours a week or a month. All of it adds up. And as I said, it's the incrementalism that leads to revolution. So I would ask anyone listening, mothers and others, students and survivors, we're not just moms, to text the word READY to 64433. And a volunteer will call you back. One of our our team volunteers who who does this full-time, which is just to kind of call volunteers and welcome them into the fold and tell them how they can plug in where they live. And just start there. And we'll be sure to put that text into our episode notes as well. And coming full circle, incrementalism saves lives. And I love the idea of picking one aspect or two aspects and digging deep and then finding time that you can dedicate every day or every week to that one aspect. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Shannon. I look forward to seeing and hearing more about your incredible work and advocacy in this area and hope to have you back as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast. Mm-hmm.